Hello friends, welcome back to the Pulpit Pew Podcast and this week's adult Bible study as we continue our study on some of Jesus' parables. This week we're in Matthew chapter number 13, looking at a parable that talks about the wheat and the tares. Let's get started. Let's go to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. We were in Matthew 13 to start this series on parables. And then we've gotten away from Matthew 13 to some other parables, and now we are coming back. You may remember when we were here and started this, it was the parable of the different soils. There was the good soil, and there was the thorny soil, or the, the seed that was planted in this thorny ground, and, and then there was that on the wayside and we talked about in that parable the different hearts and the reception of the seed, the reception of the gospel, the reception of the word of God. But Jesus is going to continue in parables. He actually gives several here. We're just going to look at one today. But it starts in verse 24. So we'll pick up the reading there, and then he's going to give a few other parables, and then he will explain this first parable starting in verse 36. So I think I'm going to read through it. And then come back and we'll just break it down. So let's just read through it. Verse 24 says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in this field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather them up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and in the time of harvest, I will say unto the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I'm going to get to the explanation that Jesus gives in a second. It doesn't matter what explanation I give. Jesus actually tells you what these mean. But notice the parable, the story that he sets out. You have a, a farmer who sowed good seed in a field. You imagine this field and he plants this seed expecting a harvest. But while they were sleeping, the enemy came in and he planted tares. Now, I, I don't remember the exact term or the name of this tear, but it was a, it was a type of, of crop that it would grow up along with the wheat and it would look like wheat. It would imitate wheat, look just like it. But in the end, it had no seed in there. It produced nothing. And it would sometimes kind of choke out or be hard to discern from the actual wheat. And that's what this servant had done, to try to sabotage the field, so what he had done. And so they, the, the servants were kind of frustrated and said, what are we going to do? And he said, ah, just, just let it be. And at harvest time, we're going to bundle up the stuff that's fake and we're going to, to burn it. And so then Jesus kind of pivoted and he told a parable about a mustard seed. And then he told a short parable about leaven. And his disciples, it's kind of like when he was done, they're like, hey, get, let's go back to that field. And they said, look at verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, 
Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. It's like the, I just picture them just sitting there thinking on this and thinking on this because some time has already went by because he's already told two other quick parables. Jesus went in, sat down, told other multitudes, hey, go back. Because if we went back to chapter 13, you remember that there was a large multitude of people with him when he taught this and they were listening on as he was teaching to his disciples that parable. And so they go and get seated, and I just picture them sitting down, maybe around a fire, and then they said, hey, remember that parable you just told about the tares? Explain that to us. And so, verse 37, he answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. So who's that? Jesus. Very simple. Jesus is the one that sowed the good seed. Verse 38, the field is the world. That's the big one. That's the controversial one. It's not the church. He's not referring to the church here. The field is the world. So the good seed is uh, the one, the one that sowed the good seed is Jesus. The field that received that good seed is this world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, Christians, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and shall gather out of the kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Pretty strong application there in the last part of that. So let's kind of go back and, and take a look at this, this parable a little bit. So we said the good seed is not the word of, of God. That's a big difference from the first 13 verses. Now we didn't do this parable back to back. We did the, the first 13 or so verses from Matthew 13 a few several weeks ago so it may not sit in your mind but in that case the good seed was the word of god in this situation the good seed represents us as christians talking about in a sense that we as christians are in this world and we some up wherever, wherever you live you some live in poland some live in uh, cloverdale some may live in Greencastle. we make up different areas in our area we are planted we are here we are raised up wherever we are as christians the field in this situation, which is different than the first part of this chapter, is not human hearts. It's the soil doesn't, the field of this is not representing the human hearts, but it represents the world. And so what we're seeing in this early on is some Satan counterfeits. And I was trying to think about this passage and, and kind of what he's getting at at first a little bit. And I was trying to think of a way to illustrate it. It's kind of like diluting something. In the sense what he's saying is we as Christians have spread out throughout this world. And I think about from the earliest times of when Jesus was crucified and his followers. And you get over to Acts chapter 17 and, and, and some of even the enemies of Christianity said the, these Christians have turned the world upside down. And the known world have been turned upside down. But now Christianity has spread throughout the entire world. There are some places that have not heard about Jesus Christ. But for the majority the gospel has been spread throughout this world. And if that was it, the gospel had spread and there had been no, nothing else to, to dilute it, man, the gospel would be powerful. But Satan's not going to sit back and do nothing. Satan has opposed Christianity from the very beginning of time. He's opposed 
God from the very beginning of time. In the first parable, in Matthew's 13, verses 1 through whatever, 18, or wherever we went, you may remember that he, he says the birds came and they plucked the seed. And, and in that situation, Satan was trying to snatch the word of God. He wanted to keep the gospel from ever penetrating the heart of the lost. Now, we can aid Satan and just never tell people the gospel. And some Christians are good at that. Some Christians, in a sense, aid the work of Satan by never telling others about the gospel. Some churches do that by just getting up and telling wonderful stories and self-motivation and never preaching the gospel. That's a, I say churches in quotation marks. That's a dangerous thing. But that was what Satan, Satan wants to snatch the seed and he wants to keep people from hearing the gospel. But he's got another strategy as well. And that strategy is to imitate the gospel. And so here he's saying that in this world there are Christians, but Satan also has his enemies, this tares, that grow up alongside us. And if you think about it, in life as a Christian, we don't be, get saved and then isolate ourselves from the world in the sense that, hey, we only work at jobs where there's every Christian that believes exactly like us. No, we, we grow up alongside unsaved people. Not tomorrow, because I took tomorrow off, yes. But Tuesday, I will go to work, and there will be people at work that don't believe in Jesus Christ. And I don't just go to work and start walking, and I see one of them go, oh, whoa, go over here. I'm not going by you. It's not how it works. We drink the same coffee at work. We talk to the same customers. We exchange work emails. You grow alongside, and you live alongside, and you function alongside people that are not Christians. Now, there is a principle about being separate from them, but it doesn't mean that you treat them and act like, it just means this, I don't have to participate in some of the activities, the sinful activities that they do, but we function in a world together. And how, when is everything going to be separated? In the end, which we'll get to in a second. And so there are, but there are counterfeit Christians. There are not only those that that oppose Jesus Christ, that's kind of easy to see those tears because they just would stand out and maybe say, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe. Michelle and I were talking about this. This is kind of a separate, but we went yesterday to the Creation Museum, but a few weeks ago we went to Washington, D.C. What is the name of the place we went in Washington, D.C.? We went into the Smithsonian Museum and it was the National. Um, well, it, basically, it was the opposite of the Creation Museum. It was national history. And so we, we walked into that place, and they are giving their version of the beginning of the world. And what broke our hearts, and I, we didn't talk about it until we left the place, and we left pretty immediately after. Both of us a little bit teary-eyed. It, it, not because it wasn't a beautiful place, a neat place, and we did see a few things. I love to see the big dinosaur things that they say were millions of years old anyways. But... but there was, a, there was a mom with her little kid, and they were looking at those Neanderthals or whatever, and she was saying something to the effect of, look, this, this is where it all began. And we, and we stood there, both separate, because we were doing our own thing, and we both looked and saw that scene and thought about that little boy, probably my boy's age or so, and he's from the earliest of times he is hearing what he's going to assume to be truth. 
And based on, well, we saw a good video yesterday, but based on what he's hearing at that age, now he's going to filter everything around that. And what he needs is the truth of God's word. And it broke our hearts. We actually just left. I mean, it's cool, but we were just like, I just, I just want to stand there and debate with everyone. Not debate, but just be like, no, 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 come here. And not that I would do that, but it just breaks your heart. But there's, there's a counterfeit to everything that God has done because Satan wants to either keep you from ever hearing the gospel, and I pray that that kid will never cross paths with probably the rest of my life. At some point, here's the gospel, and here's about the truth of creation. But there's, there's not only the counterfeit, but sometimes he's, he's going to put religious people out there that have a counterfeit gospel. What do I mean? Well, I wrote down this text in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. I won't have you necessarily turn there. You can if you want. But in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, here's what Paul said. Paul said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, means it's not the same, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel unto you, that which, ye, that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say now again unto you, if we preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. Here's what he's saying to this church of Galatia. If anyone has preached anything unto you other than this, that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, he was buried, and he rose again victorious over sin and death. That is the gospel. Any other way that someone says that you have to do to go to heaven is a counterfeit gospel. Because the Bible is very clear. I can do nothing to get myself to heaven. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And so anything else is another gospel. And what do you think Satan does? He raises up religious organizations that preach another gospel. And what does it do? It dilutes, in a sense, the truth, the message of the gospel. Now, it doesn't affect the truth of the gospel. But it affects those that hear. They're confused now. Because now it's, well, is it what this place says or what this says? Is it what the Bible says or what the Book of Mormon says? Or, or you got the Jehovah's Witness. They said that Jesus is not God, but yet you guys say Jesus is God. And what has happened? It is this right here. It's tears that come up along the truth that try to hinder the gospel. There's counterfeit righteousness. Not only counterfeit Christians that call themselves Christians, but do, are not truly saved because they're believing another way. The counterfeit gospel, it's the, the way they're believing. And, but there's counterfeit righteousness. I think of Romans 10. In Romans 10, when Paul said this to the church at Rome, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What he's saying there is there is a counterfeit righteousness. And it's preached in some of our religious organizations that you have to, to, to do right in order to get to heaven. But, the, but that's counterfeit because the Bible says that my righteousness is as filthy rags. I can do nothing. 
It's the righteousness of Jesus that was put on my account. That is how I get to heaven. And so I know that in a Sunday school class, you're going to more than likely be saved. But what I'm trying to say is this. I'm thinking of that little boy in that Smithsonian. Is He's going to hear, a, he's going to see counterfeit Christians that call themselves Christians, but they're not Christians. He's going to see a counterfeit gospel probably in his lifetime where people that are saying this is how you get to heaven and it's nowhere near the Bible. He may know of a counterfeit righteousness that says you do this to earn yourself into this glorious place called heaven, but that's a counterfeit righteousness and then one day there's going to be a counterfeit Christ. His name is Antichrist. And he's going to come and try to establish and say that he is, in a sense, the Messiah, but he's not. And so, I guess the, the thought in this early section is, we are of this world, and we are followers of Jesus Christ, and what the Word of God says, I believe the true gospel, but we now have, the, alongside of us will be those that preach a different gospel. Alongside of us will be those that call themselves Christians, and you don't hear a testimony. You don't see any truth. They don't follow the Word of God. So what is our responsibility? Let's just get to application now for a second. What is our responsibility? Well, our responsibility, number one, is to, to stand out for Christ. Not stand out in the sense of look at me and selfies and Facebook and Instagram. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we need to live our lives consistent with the Word of God. I'm going to keep using this little boy that I never know, but that little boy, he needs to see what true Christianity is. But if we come around him and we are trying to be like the world, like the tares, what is he? What hope does he have? Break it down a little bit more. My kids, if my kids see their dad trying to be like this world and to be cool, what hope do they have? We need to live out the gospel. We that are true Christians that have, have received Jesus Christ, we need to live out the gospel, number one. But number two, we need to share the gospel. People are not going to be saved unless we take the gospel to this lost and dying world. What I loved about the Christian, I've been there before, but what I loved is that in everything we basically went to, there was the gospel. There was the gospel. Even the last ad, we went to see the last time I knew I'd seen it. I knew what it was going to end up being. But I wanted to see it because it was going to be basically a clear presentation of the gospel. And I thought, how many people come through there and they get to hear the gospel? And some of them go in thinking they're saved, and they are. And others think they are, and maybe they're not. But they get to hear the clear presentation of the gospel. But it's not just, we don't look at just answers in Genesis or something like that and say, we need you guys to reach this world. No, God looks at us and says, hey, reach the world. Hey, Brad, you're in First National Bank now. Live for me. And as you have opportunity, share the gospel. Doesn't mean I go into work every day saying, all right, who's it going to be today? All right, there's a teller. You're new. Come here. Got to share the gospel with you. It's not how it works. It just means I, live, I need to live in a way that's consistent with the word of God. And as opportunity presents itself, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to tell others. And the opposite seems to be the case in my life and sometimes others, maybe maybe you as well, where it's like, hey, I'm saved and I'm thankful and now my life is just busy and I don't even, I don't even worry about others. But when, every time Shell and I talk about that little boy, it just breaks my heart to think that there was a, there's a generation growing up that didn't have the privilege that my kids have. They, didn't, they don't get to hear, they don't know the gospel. And that mom maybe is doing the best that she can. I'm not saying anything evil about him. That may be no one's ever told her. 
And we have a responsibility to tell the gospel because what, what's going to happen? Well, you saw it in this next text. How's this all going to be worked out? Because you would think, maybe we like the servants would say, God, why don't you just come down and pluck out the wicked? And, and, and why don't you just... Well, one of the things I think about this is God is very merciful because he's not taking away those that oppose him right now. He's showing long suffering. He's allowing us time to reach them with the gospel. They're not yet, they've not yet been taken to the last part that you know, because I've already read what's going to happen. They're still here. And God is a long-suffering God and a merciful God that is not willing that any should perish, according to 1 Peter, but that all should come to repentance. And, and so God is merciful here in that he's not plucking them up yet, but there will come a day, he says, when they will be gathered together. And you know, it's not my job to try to necessarily discern. I think there's some times when you need to teach and say, hey, this isn't truth. I mean, this is a false gospel. But it's not my job to go around and say, hey, Jim, you're not saved. All right. I just, I don't know, you're not saved. Cindy told me a few things and you're just not saved. You know, that's between him and God. Now, if Jim came to me personally and said, hey, I need to talk to you about something. He goes, I, I you know, I believe I'm saved. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, because one day a bright light in the sky shone over top of me and it was shining down right on me. And I just feel like that's the moment I got saved. And he's asking me, and you know what I'm saying, Jim? You're not saved. Because the Bible says this. But the idea is I'm not to go around and try to, try to stir up fights with everybody. I'm just to live and preach and teach the truth. And as I have an opportunity to do that. But there will come a day when reality will set in. Let's say Jim says that to me, and then he just stands his ground. He says, I don't care what you say, Brett. I'm saved. I'm saved because that bright light shone down on me. And I'm going, okay. You know what? I shared the truth with Jim. He stood his ground and said this right. You know what's going to happen? One of these days, it's all going to be worked out. So one of these days, all right, you want to believe that? I've showed you the truth. You want to, One of these days, we're going to be gone. And we're not going to get into the angels gathered and what does that mean, all of that. Here's what's, here's what's going to happen. And one day, God, the righteous God, will be the discerner of truth. And those that do not receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will be cast into the lake of fire. There will be a discerning one day of truth and error. And when that day comes, he says, there will be those that are cast into the furnace of fire. In this illustration, there should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. For those that say, well, Hell is just a place of separation from God. It's just death and, and you cease to exist. Jesus spoke a lot and described very often hell and the lake of fire. Some say, and I haven't done all the numbers, but he spoke more on hell than he did heaven. And here he describes it as a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. I don't believe, and I'm always, I'm, I'm always hesitant in a class like this to say too much on this, but... The, the scripture goes here because I don't, I'm not trying to scare you into saying, well, maybe I'm not saved then. Okay, that's not what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm saying. If there's ever been a time in your life when you've understood your sin, when you've placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ alone, and you received your Savior, you're saved. Okay? So don't let this verse right here scare you out of that. I've told you before. I was a kid, I got saved probably every Sunday because I got scared to death all the time. I was a little kid and I didn't really get saved every Sunday, but I was like, ah, just in case, God, no. But that's a lack of faith. 
Because faith says, Jesus says, all them that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And so, but there will come a day when the Jehovah's Witness that have preached their thing and us Christians will stand before God. They're convinced that they're right. We're convinced the Bible teaches something different. Guess who's the great discerner, the creator of this world? And God at that time, he says, you will gather them and there shall be a weep, a wailing and gnashing of teeth. Those atheists that mock us, Christians will stand there one day before God. Now there's two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ where we will be. It's not determining our eternal destination. There's the great white throne judgment where lost people will be. So I'm not saying necessarily that we as Christians will be there watching them and see what happens. I don't know how that plays out. I know that we will have a judgment seat of Christ and they will have the great white throne judgment. But what I'm getting at and what this text is getting at is God is the great discerner. Truth will prevail one day. And sadly, this isn't a triumphant type of thing for us. Sadly, those that reject the truth will be cast into hell and then later the lake of fire where the Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It isn't just a permanent sleep. It isn't just permanent separation from God. It is torment for all of eternity. And there's no really way around that when you study the Bible outside of just changing what the Bible says. Luke 16, he gave, he, he told a story about hell. In a variety of places, he says, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It's a real place. And it ought to break our hearts. Whenever you and I get a, this type of thought in our heads in this passage, it ought to drive us to say, I don't want anyone that I know or that I love or that I cross paths with to ever have to face this eternity. It ought to motivate us to say, I want to tell people about the gospel. I'm more concerned about their eternity than my pride and how I look and how people view me. And as I've said many times, I don't think you have to be weird I don't think you have to be weird about it. You just have to be compassionate. Most people are attentive to compassionate people, but they stiff-arm jerks. That's what I've found. If you're a jerk, they're going to avoid you. But when you're compassionate, they'll at least give you an ear. They may not agree, but they respect the fact that you're compassionate and passionate about what you believe. But don't be a jerk. Because I think being a jerk only hinders the gospel. And so this parable is a very serious one. We are, we are going to rub shoulders. We're going to grow up alongside some tares in our life. We need to be wheat. We need to be the truth. And we need to do the, all that we can to reach the loss with the gospel, knowing that one day God will separate the wheat from the tares. And the tares will spend eternity in the, well, here's the furnace, the lake of fire we know. For us, it says in the last verse, the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. We're going to rejoice, and heaven's going to be an amazing, beautiful place. Just looking at that planetarium yesterday, all that God has created, even beyond what we can see, that we, I'm like, why did you created this galaxies that we can barely see that are the most beautiful things in the world, and no one, no one appreciates it. Just no one can. Only God. If he's willing to do that, how much do you think, how beautiful do you think heaven is that we're all going to be at for eternity? I think it's going to be amazing. And that's where we're going to be one day. 
And so let's make sure that we're taking as many friends and family and loved ones with us as possible and not getting to heaven wishing we would have done more. Let's pray.